This podcast is brought to you by the Love Serve Remember Foundation and Ramdas.org. Welcome to Ramdas Here and Now, and I'm Raghu Marcus, and we've got a surprise today, a surprise guest, although not live. Um, as you, as many of you know, and most of you that have been listening to this podcast, uh, well, it's going on a year and some months, I believe, at this point. And I usually find an essency Ramdas talk and uh, just take a a part of it and and introduce it, and sometimes relate my own experience with what he's talking about. Uh, I'm going to switch up because we're going to do something. Uh, that is uh, with another teacher. It's not Ramdas today. And it's going to be a two-part thing, so I hope everybody enjoys it. Do give me some feedback at info at ramdas.org or on the uh, podcast site and just, uh, you know, let me know what you think of uh, this little switch up with Sharon. Now, many of you uh, know Sharon, I have to think, because she's so closely associated with Ramdas and has done many different things with him from retreats to uh, online workshops and, and so on and so forth. And uh, they, we really have known each other for a very long time since the old India days. And for those of you that remember, Ramdas tells this story a lot about uh being at the uh, the uh, Vipassana course in Bodhgaya and meeting there, meeting many, many people who uh, have stayed very close to each other for all these years and many of whom came to meet Neem Karoli Baba Maharaji. And uh, one of those people at that course, and then he goes off on this bus ride where he f- meets Maharaji, actually for the first time since he had gone, uh, it'd been many months, he had gotten to India and then maybe five months went by before he could see him again. He saw him, I believe, uh, in the fall of 70 when he went back and many of us went over at the same time. So Sharon was there and that began a, a tremendous friendship uh uh, with Sharon, with with many of us f- uh, from uh, that uh, Maharaji Satsang, and uh, of course Ramdas and uh, myself included, and the the uh, so this talk that uh, I'm going to play in two parts is taken from a talk uh, that she did. Uh, in my little hometown of Asheville, North Carolina, because we invited her to uh, to come through here and just gives us an opportunity to hang out and no more, you know, fun than that. Uh, so uh, she came and the title of the talk she gave, and it was also a weekend workshop, was um, Loving Kindness in the Face of Adversity. So, uh, that's where this talk comes from. And, you know, and for those of you who don't know, Sharon is a, um, has a, a Vipassana center in Barry, Massachusetts, Insight Meditation. And she has been teaching in this country ever since the uh, 70s when she and her two compatriots, Jack Cornfield and Joseph Goldstein, came back to America and they have been leading lights uh and and have helped so many people and and Sharon is just uh, I don't want to get too gushy here uh but uh, just some practical wise teachings and a, and a beautiful compassionate heart and she is 
as far as I'm concerned, the essence of uh, of bhakti and uh, and Buddhist wisdom. And uh, so I highly uh, encourage you all, even though it's not Ram Das, but you know what? It's no more or less than coming from the same heart. It really is. Um, and so in this talk, she talks a lot about, um, I mean, just a basic concept that this is not about, this is about, you don't have to, to join anything. You don't have to be a Buddhist around this. These are tools and techniques, uh, that, that you can utilize to have a happier life. I mean, this is direct words from her. These tools do not require a belief system, which is, a wonderful thing for, for, for many of us in, in these times where, you know, you don't have to go to India. You don't have to join anything. It's about retraining the conditions of the mind to have a happier life. Simple as that. Um, and uh, my own, in my own experience around that word happiness is, um, uh, being with Maharaji in India, and my father came to visit my brother, and I've told this on other podcasts, uh, or at least uh, once before, but just uh, it, it fits really well here uh, with what Sharon's talking about. And anyhow, he said to my father, uh, you came to see your sons? And he said, yes. And so, uh, you know, so how he said, I came to see how they were doing. My father said this. And he said, so how are they doing? And my father said, well, they seem to be happy. Happy, we were beyond happy. Uh, and uh, Maharaji said, happiness is everything. So we've had this discussion. Obviously, he's not meaning happiness. Yeah, we get to, uh, you know, spend the rest of our life, uh, you know, eating good food, uh, you know, going to the movies, watching a game, whatever it is. Um, there's a there's a a richness in that in the potential of that word which Sharon is is what she's talking about and that is uh, in 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 my mind it's about balance it's about being able to uh, keep a a um, a peaceful heart amidst the chaos and the speed of what we go through here in the West and uh, it's about contentment. Uh, the Buddhist use being at ease. Um, that that's a, a great term. Being at ease with whatever comes one's way. So I think happiness is a very rich, rich term. Now Sharon expresses it uh, beautifully in a book she wrote. Uh, this is not the, a couple of years ago, I think. It's called Real Happiness. And uh, just let me. Uh, I just have to read a little mm -hmm. something uh, from this. Uh, it's never too late to turn on the light. Your ability to break an unhealthy habit or turn off an old tape doesn't depend on how long it's been running. A shift in perspective doesn't depend on how long you've held on to the old view. When you flip the switch in that attic, it doesn't matter whether it's been dark for 10 minutes, 10 years, or 10 decades. The light still illuminates the room and banishes the dark. That's just one little piece from, uh, and, and one, one great, I, um, picture of the kind, the way in which Sharon, uh, relates and, and the way in which, um, some really valuable information comes. 
um, that that uh, can help. Um, just th- this is from the uh, re- from the uh, workshop she did uh, from the talk I'm going to play, which is actually from the uh, fr- it was on a Friday and Saturday, Friday night. The possibility of retraining your mind in a new way, so the old patterns of pushing away or holding on or being distracted or being ashamed, they can be challenged. They can be let go of into a whole new way of relating to our experience. I mean, just straight on helpful stuff. I love it. And um, before I'm going to play it, I, I have to, the, 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 this is the essence of it all for me, really. All of this has nothing to do with Buddhism per se. It has to do with being a human being and having a capacity to look deeper into our lives. It's it's simplistic. And I, I would also be remiss in not uh, mentioning uh, Sharon's new book with Robert Thurman, Love Your Enemies, How to Break the Anger Habit and Be a Whole Lot Happier. Back to the happiness uh, this this is a, an add-on, uh, and I'm I'm I was first in line to get this book. Okay, everybody, uh, because uh, yeah, break the anger. That's certainly been a toughie, um, you know. And it, the book deals with self-centeredness and self-hatred, and it really addresses uh, the whole idea of self-cherishing. So uh, you can get those books, by the way, Real Happiness or Love Your Enemies. Uh, uh, go to Amazon. Go through our portal on ramdas.org. We have an Amazon portal. I think you can find it uh, along one of the blog uh, headings down in just below the middle of the page. Uh, but then if you uh, that's a great way to help uh, support the foundation because uh, we get a little piece of everything that you buy from Amazon. So if you just bookmark that Amazon Amazon portal, that would be uh, wonderful and would help us. Another way you can help us, and uh, I want to, just before we get this going, uh, again mention we're in the middle of an, an amazing uh, campaign to fund digitizing the entire uh, Ramdas and Friends, because it's everything, including what I'm going to play with uh, this uh, Sharon uh, talk that I'm going to play, and, and making that available uh, um, on, the, on the net and searchable, and we're going to do be able to do amazing things by just being able to index stuff so that when you want to just find out about, you know, grief or or uh, uh, compassion, or, you know, how to deal with the emotions, how to develop compassion, any of these things, you'll be able to just go do this, and that's what this project is about. And you can win a a three-day personal retreat with Ramdas, and your whole trip is paid for. So, uh, we're like I say, we're about halfway there, uh, trying to get to our goal, and we got another month to go. And there's all different ways to support, all sorts of wonderful pride. There's a be here now clock that's amazing uh, that you would love, uh, and a and a new poster for for uh, a book coming out in in February. So lots of, of fun things to get involved with to help support this project. Go to Urgency Network dot com slash be here now 
urgencynetwork.com slash be here now or just go to ramdas.org and uh, when you're over there ordering your Amazon books there is a banner so uh, that you can link to to get to this site and it explains everything so uh, here we go uh, thanks for, for everybody's support and we'll see you next time a year ago a full year ago uh, more even I was in New York City and uh, flying from Newark Airport to Chicago. And it turned out to be one of those events where the flight was delayed an hour and then another hour and then another hour and I had a really bad feeling. And then finally it was canceled. It was canceled at like 9.30, 10 o'clock at night. And it was too late for me to get another flight. And I ended up being up literally the entire night on the phone with airlines, and I, I got another flight and flew to Chicago the next day. So yesterday, I went to Newark Airport, and I had this eerie feeling. I really did. I thought, somehow this feels like that other day, a year ago, and there was supposed to be these torrential storms later in the day, and I checked, and I thought, oh, good, my flight's leaving before the storms are supposed to hit. And then I watched them postpone it an hour, and postpone it like another half an hour. And I thought, oh no. So I, I went up to um, this really sweet guy working behind the ticket counter. And this feeds into the question, which we'll get into, of loving kindness and anger. Because you can imagine how people were. And I said to him, what do you think? And he said, the flight's supposed to be leaving... Florida and check in 15 minutes. If it hasn't left Florida, I don't think it's going to happen. So I checked back in 15 minutes, hadn't left Florida. So, and I happened to be standing right in front of the board where uh, I saw it change to canceled. So I ran over to customer service <laughs> where there was already a line. And uh, so this was the airline I have the most miles on, so I was a premier, right? So I was on, like, the special people's line. <laughs> and it was already long. And on the other line was a Buddhist monk. And, and I kept, like, looking at him, and he looked quite serene. <laughs> and everyone else was, like, freaking out, you know, and yelling and screaming and because they ended up canceling six flights. There were no flights, you know, because they hadn't left seats on, on all the... The only flights that were leaving were the planes that were already there and not having to come in from anywhere. So in the meantime, I'm on this line, and I called my travel agent. I still have a travel agent uh, who said, there is, there are no way, there's no way you're going to get to Asheville. There's no way you're going to get to Charlotte. And as he was looking at his computer, two seats came up for today to Charlotte. And I said, all right, get me one. <laughs> so by the time I was in the front of the line, I had a seat. And I kept looking at the Buddhist monk, and I kept looking at the Buddhist monk. And then um, I started to leave because I had to retrieve my bag, which was another two hours, literally. But I knew that in, in the Buddhist tradition, and, and he was wearing kind of saffron-colored robes, which meant he was like a Thai or Burmese monk, and uh, they're very strict about, first of all, not monastics, monks and nuns don't eat after noon. And if they have anything after noon, it's like water, 
or filtered juice or, or maybe tea, but it needs to be offered. You wouldn't like go up to somebody and say, hey, would you give me a glass of water or something like that? And so um, I had this bottle of water, so I went up to him and I offered him the water. And he looked so stunned and so happy. And he started drinking because, of course, it was really hot. So I left um, feeling really good about the whole experience. <laughs> then I went back to my apartment, got up this morning, uh, and came here. So I was like, great. It all worked. Um, and sometimes those are kind of the most meaningful trips, aren't they? You know, where you have to find all of this within yourself and really pay attention to what your experience is and to others and go forward in that way. So I felt like it was an incredible adventure coming here even yesterday, (laughs) just seeing the Buddhist monk. It was so cool. And here we are, loving kindness in difficult circumstances. Um, I did keep reminding myself yesterday, of course it was on the scale of things, not that grave a difficulty, but still, there's frustration all the time, impatience potentially, not getting exactly what we want. And um, this fits into really what was, the I think, the Buddha's very radical questioning of the nature of life. And um, I went to India myself when I was uh, 18 years old. It was 1970. I was at that time a junior in college, and as a sophomore, I had taken an Asian philosophy course. And honestly, looking back, I think it was kind of happenstance. It was like, I could use a Tuesday course. There's a philosophy requirement. Let me take that one. And it totally changed my life Um, for two reasons. One was the Buddha's very unashamed, unafraid acknowledgement of the suffering in life because like many people I'd come from a family background with a lot of suffering and distress and loss and confusion and like for many people it was a family system where these things were never really spoken about and so I didn't know what to do with all of those feelings inside of me and here is the Buddha saying right out loud this is a part of life You're not weird. You're not different. You don't have to feel isolated. You don't have to feel so alone. Everybody is vulnerable to change, to loss. And it's not that we all suffer in the same measure, because we don't. And it's not that that's all there is to life, but it's a part of life. And in some ways, acknowledging that should have us feel closer to one another and not so far apart. So I heard that. And I also heard in that class that there were tools, there were actual techniques that one might utilize to have a happier life. And that these tools didn't require a belief system. It didn't require like a declaration or an identification. Now I'm a Buddhist. didn't require rejecting anything else. It wasn't about dogma. It wasn't about religion even. It was about retraining the conditioning of the mind to be a whole lot happier. So what were some of those tools. There were um, suggestions or there were directions about 
changing our relationship to pleasure, to joy, to the wondrous, beautiful things that can happen to us in our lives. Sometimes these great, great things are happening and we're so distracted, we hardly even take them in. Or we somehow are fixated on what we don't have and we tend to neglect what we do have. Because all we're thinking about is, you know, how am I ever going to get that other thing? And so we might have very little appreciation and very little gratitude, even though there is some abundance, there is some joy available to us. Or we might have this kind of weird relationship. We often do, actually, almost like apologetic, like we don't deserve it, those really good things, and so we kind of repackage them in some funny way. These days, I often tell the story about being with my friends um, on Maui last December, uh, teaching with Ramdas and Krishnadas in this beautiful place. Um, it was a resort that we kind of take over, and it's right on the beach. So, like the dining room, you know, there are no windows. It's just like the air coming in from the beach and the sound of the water and. It's just totally amazingly gorgeous, and it's December, right? And I'm from Massachusetts, so that's different. And it was a retreat, so it was on my schedule anyway, my public schedule, but somehow I did something like I tweeted or something, saying, oh, I'm in Maui. And I started getting all these messages from people like, wow, you're on Maui. And right away I found myself responding by saying, it's very humid here. It's really humid. It's not as beautiful as you think. It's really, you know, horribly humid. And I told this story in the, in the retreat, and it became like this thing. Like once I was walking out of the meditation hall, and behind me there was a friend and the now adult son of another friend. And he was saying that his mom had really thought about coming to the retreat and was very close and she almost came and then she just decided she couldn't pull it off and the other friend said to him, well, have you told her how humid it is here? You know, it's like, you're not missing anything. We're not having that good a time. It's really humid here. You know, so sometimes we do that too. So what I heard in this class was, just the possibility of changing our relationship to joy and happiness and delight. And, of course, the possibility of changing our relationship to difficulty, to suffering, to frustration, to anxiety. Not by somehow making only good things happen, which no one can, but really by transforming that relationship so that we're not, in a way, adding insult to injury. We're not obsessing about the wrong done to us by the airline, realizing we have a bigger life, not feeling so alone, having much more of a sense of connection with others, a sense of community in pain, in difficulty, rather than such isolation, not adding shame 
I should have been able to control it. I should have been totally on top of this, the way I'm told every single day by the media. So it's my fault that I'm hurting. So many ways that our, our conditioning around pain and distress is um, kind of askew, and we suffer so much more. So I heard that. And I even heard that there's the possibility of changing our relationship to neutral experience, those ordinary in-between places. Not so pleasant, not so unpleasant. The routine, the repetitious, where we tend to go to sleep. We disconnect, we numb out, and we're somewhere else waiting for something really great or exciting to happen. So these tools as a bundle were called meditation. So what I heard in that class was that there was the possibility of retraining your mind, kind of like educating your mind in a new way so that those old patterns of holding on and pushing away and being distracted and being ashamed, they could be challenged and they could be relinquished into a whole new way of relating to our experience the joy and the sorrow and the neutrality. And so this was 1970, and um, I was going to school in Buffalo, New York, State University of New York at Buffalo. And they had an independent study program in one of their departments, so if you created a project they liked and they approved it, you could go anywhere in the world, theoretically for a year, and then come back and do your final year study. So I created a project. I said, I want to go to India and study meditation. So this is what education looked like in 1970. They said, sure, go. <laughs> and I went. And as Raghu said, it was January 1971 where I uh, made my way to Bodh Gaya, India. And having wandered around India for a while, because I was looking for something very specific. I really wasn't into a, a religion or a philosophical overlay. I wanted to learn if there were some practical tools that might really change my mind and my happiness. And I really do believe that there are so many methods, and they can be expressed in so many different languages, so many different ways, that these are really kind of universal truths. It was a while since I've been 18, and so for many years now, this is the, the mode of expression I'm most comfortable in, because I'm just used to it. But really, this has nothing to do with Buddhism per se. It has to do with being a human being and having a capacity to look deeper into our lives. So I ended up in Bodh Gaya because I heard that there was going to be this intensive 10-day retreat that sounded exactly like what I was looking for, very practical, very pragmatic, not a lot of cultural overlay. And I walked into that retreat center never having meditated for one single second before in my life. And that was the beginning. It was also the place where I met Ramdas and Krishnadas and Joseph Goldstein and many, many people who are still my very close friends. The process was one of uncovering. 
and it was really kind of incredible. The emphasis was on meditation practice as a skills training. And tonight and through tomorrow, um, that's what we're really going to focus on with a chance to practice together and have questions and really look at this experience, particularly around this question of loving kindness. So I see meditation as a skills training in three major arenas. The first is what we call concentration. And this is based on the idea that most of us are fairly distracted. We may not be always distracted, but at least in some arenas, we're kind of lost. And you don't have to be an experienced meditator to know this. You just sit down to think something through, and we're gone. Sometimes way gone. Our minds tend to go to the past, and we go over and over and over and over some situation. Often one where we now have some amount of regret, but we're not going over the situation with an eye to how to make an am- make amends or be different. We're just going over it and over it and over it and over it. Or our minds jump to the future, and we create a scenario that has not happened and may never happen. And we're filled with anxiety about that. My favorite example of that actually is I was teaching with um, this friend, Bob Thurman, who's my co-author on... on uh, what I have to school myself to call my most recent book, <laughs> Love Your Enemies. Um, we're teaching in New York City together, and I just used this example. I said, it's funny now, given my experience yesterday, but I said, I think of it like this, like you're sitting on an airplane on a tarmac in a New York City airport, and you start getting really anxious, like, oh, no, I think maybe this plane's going to be late. Oh, no, I wonder how late. Oh, it's going to be terribly late, I'm sure. What's that going to mean? I may miss my connection. Oh, I'll definitely miss my connection. What's that going to mean? That's going to mean I'm going to land in Portland, Oregon. It's going to be after midnight. What's going to happen to me? As though Portland was famous for people, like, vanishing if they landed after midnight. Like, what's going to happen to me? It's not a metropolis. You know, there won't be any cabs, but, you know, I don't know. And I said in this class that, I have kind of this personal mantra, this personal saying, and when I see my own mind beginning that arc of anxiety, I have this saying, which is, something will happen, right? Something will happen. There'll be a bus. I'll spend the night in the airport. Something will happen. I can't figure it out right now. So the reason I said I was teaching with Bob when I told the story was because about six weeks after that class, I got an email from him which simply said, just landed in Portland, lots of cabs. (laughs) You know, so it's like, but our minds, it's like, oh no, you know, what's going to happen to me? So we have this habit of distractedness sometimes, jumping to the past, jumping to the future, feeling very unsettled, uncentered. The larger manifestation of that in our lives, our day-to-day lives, is often a feeling of fragmentation. It's the way we can have so much role identification, the way people sometimes say, I feel like I'm one person at work, and I'm a different person at home. Or my still my very favorite example of that was 
I was teaching in New York City once, and someone raised her hands, and she said, I feel filled with loving kindness for all beings everywhere as long as I'm alone. <laughs> but once I'm with others is really rough. <laughs> and we all laughed because we knew exactly what she meant. Or we might be kind of the opposite. We feel fine when we're with others, but very ill at ease being alone. So our lives can be sort of scattered, cut apart, not united. So what we do in the development of concentration, the deepening of concentration, is we gather. We take all the kind of scattered, dispersed, wild energy, we bring it together, not like squeeze it together violently, we just gather it together and we settle. We settle our attention on an object that we've chosen. And this reflects some of the Tremendous variation in methodology and meditation. That object really could be anything. Could be a sound, could be a mantra, could be a prayer, could be a visualization, could be something happening in the body. Very commonly, and that's the practice we're going to do together tonight, that chosen object is the actual feeling, the sensations of the breath. Could also be loving kindness, which is its own uh, method. But very commonly as a foundation, even if you're also doing some other kind, we use the breath as, as a foundation in that gathering for a number of different reasons. As my early teachers would say, you don't have to believe anything in order to feel your breath. You don't have to call yourself a Buddhist or Hindu or reject anything else. If you're breathing, you can be meditating. And then, as one of my teachers said, I've always felt very charmingly, he said, the breath is very portable. <laughs> you know, tonight we're going to meditate together. We're consciously coming here for a reason. Or maybe you sit every day at home or will. That means we're kind of getting used to it. We're training. We're settling our attention. We have a way of coming back to ourselves through the breath, which is always with us. So then you're sitting in an airport, let's just say, or standing in line impatiently at a store, or sitting anxiously in a doctor's waiting room, or at a contentious meeting at work where tempers are starting to flare. You don't have to open up a closet door and pull out all this equipment and sit down and close your eyes and look weird. You're breathing, right? You have that way of returning to center. So that's one reason why the, the breath is, while not exclusively that chosen object, is so common as that object. And we practice. We practice settling our attention. We can actually deepen the state of concentration. And the second great skill of meditation practice is mindfulness, which is like the word of the hour. Um, I teach... Uh, in Washington, D.C. once a month, although I'm not responsible for anything that happens there. And I usually go from New York City by train, and now I like hearing the conductors, uh, because sometimes the conductors will say, as you're approaching a, a station, they'll say, please be mindful of the gap between the train and the station platform. And I always get a rush. I think, oh, they said mindful. 
Sometimes the conductors say what they actually mean, which is please be careful of the gap between the train and the station platform. I had a conductor not too long ago who was kind of terse, and he just said, there's a gap. <laughs> no hint of how he'd like you to relate to it. Just like, there's a gap. But you do, don't you think? You hear this word mindfulness just everywhere. Uh, last weekend I went to Minneapolis to teach and um, I got off the plane in Minneapolis and the instant I got off the plane I heard an announcement, please be mindful of the way you place your luggage in the overhead compartment. I thought, oh, there it is. <laughs> what it means, that word means in a classical sense is a quality of awareness where our perception of what's happening in the moment is not so distorted by bias. It's like we don't have a big agenda in what we're looking at so that we can actually see it more clearly. Uh, one example would be maybe there's an emotion that you really think you should not be feeling and that very emotion arises. And so, of course, the conditioned tendencies try to push it away or disguise it or make believe it's something else or something like that. Whereas mindfulness would have us say, this is what's happening right now. Let me look at it. Or maybe you have a tendency um, to project, especially if something's kind of difficult or unpleasant, like I'm going to spend the rest of my life in Newark Airport waiting for this bag, <laughs> or uh, I feel this and it's going to be here forever. Right? So maybe you have that tendency to project into the future as though we knew whereas really we don't. And you notice that. You can kind of unwind that and say, okay, this is what's happening right now. Or maybe it is that tendency to, to deflect pleasure. It's so humid here. And you see that and you can come back and actually open to the experience. So mindfulness is, the development of mindfulness is developing, it's like attention training, awareness training so that we're actually seeing more truly and not in such a conditioned manner, everything. We say mindfulness is about relationship. It's not about what's happening. It's about how we're relating to what's happening. And I know one of the problems in talking about mindfulness is that so many of the words used to describe it sound to us like they're very passive, they're very complacent the kind of quietistic, you know, like we're just going to accept things the way that they are. We're going to be with things without judgment. We're going to sit together in just a few minutes, and then, uh, which makes me think about very often when we begin a meditation practice, even if we're mostly settling the attention on the feeling of the breath, very commonly, we begin just by listening to sound. And then we move our attention through some steps to the breath. So once I was teaching somewhere, and I'd gotten just that far in the instruction, let's sit and listen to sound, and someone raised their hand. And they said, well, if the sound I hear is the sound of the smoke alarm going off, 
Should I sit here mindfully, knowing that the smoke alarm is going off, or should I get up? And I said, I'd get up. But I actually understood his question. It's a very reasonable question because of those words and the associations they have. So mindfulness doesn't mean you just kind of sit there without any intelligence or any response. But we want that response to be coming from awareness, not from such old habits. So this is the example I tend to use these days. It's like, let's say you're on your way to a party and you run into a friend of yours and they say to you, guess who I met today? It's that new person who's going to be working with us, our new colleague. And they're really, really, really boring. (laughs) And then you go to the party, and who do you end up stuck talking to but that very person you have just been told is really, really, really boring. So what happens? Very likely, we don't really listen. We don't really look at them kind of looking around them, like, who else could I be talking to? Everybody would be more interesting than this person. (laughs) Or we're thinking about the 50 emails we need to write, right? And sometimes we realize that and we think, you know what? I'm not listening. I'm not really here. I actually don't know from my own experience that I find them so boring. That's just what someone told me about them. Why don't I actually listen and pay attention So maybe we do that, and at the end of the evening, we walk out of that party and we think, you know that new person? They're really, really, really boring. But maybe not, because life is full of surprises when we pay attention. So that's mindfulness. It doesn't mean you never have a response, you never do anything about anything, you never have a view. But we don't want to be just like sponges, you know, absorbing the views of others. We want to be able to take a look for ourselves. So it's a very vital kind of dynamic quality. And then the third quality is loving kindness. The third great skill, loving kindness and compassion, which are actually considered skills, which is very interesting, I think, for us in the West, where very often that very notion sounds so weird. Like, how do you train compassion? And I don't know if it's because we tend to think of a quality like compassion as a gift. And some people have it, while other people don't. And if you don't, you're out of luck. Or we think of it as an immediate emotional response. And you can't do anything about it. But in Eastern psychology, absolutely, these things are trainable. They're skills. And that's because they rest on attention, on how we pay attention. And that is absolutely trainable. So as we change the way we pay attention, we change the experience of loving kindness and compassion. So for example, um, and we'll get into it much more tonight and certainly tomorrow, we're going to sit now and do a meditation exercise of being with the breath. Now, I walked into that monastery, that retreat center in India, in January of 1971, as I said, never having meditated before for one single second. And this was the first instruction I got, sit down and be with your breath. 
And actually, I was really appalled. I thought, be with my breath. Feel my breath. I came all the way to India. You know, where's the magical, esoteric, fantastic technique that's going to turn my life around? I thought, feel my breath. Could have stayed in Buffalo to feel my breath. And then I thought, huh, how hard can this be? And I was like, whoa, this is not so easy. I thought, okay, what's it going to be? 800 breaths, 900 breaths before my mind wanders? And to my absolute astonishment, it was like one, right? Sometimes three, sometimes a half a breath, and I was gone and way gone. So that's a common experience. That's not aberrant. You know, that is a common experience. The question is, what happens when we realize we've been gone? We've already been lost. We've already been distracted. We've already fallen asleep, whatever it is. And then comes this moment when we realize, oh, it's been quite some time since I last felt a breath. That's the moment. That's the moment of transformation because that's the moment we have the chance to be really different. So instead of condemning ourselves and blaming ourselves and feeling like a failure, we practice letting go and we practice beginning again. That's compassion. That's not maybe our conditioned tendency. Our conditioned tendency is maybe more like, I can't believe I'm thinking. Why am I thinking? I'm so stupid. I'm so bad. No one else in the room is thinking. They're all sitting here in bliss. They're probably enlightened. I mean, at the very least, they're, you know, they're bathed in brilliant white light. Or I forget the color of that light. Is it golden? Is it blue? I forget. But any, whatever it is, they're bathed in light. I don't have any light. All I'm doing is thinking. They're so good. I'm so terrible. I mean, maybe they are thinking, but they're thinking beautiful thoughts. They're thinking exalted thoughts. They're thinking thoughts that are so spiritual. They're unbelievable. I'm the only one who's thinking about town called Hickory. Why am I thinking about town called Hickory? I'm not from this place, but it's such an odd name, don't you think, to call town Hickory? I mean, it's a beautiful name, but it's like, what's it about, you know? Right? So when we do that, not only are we adding sometimes tremendously to the period of distraction, but it's so demoralizing. It's so exhausting. In contrast to Gently letting go and beginning again, which is really an exercise in compassion for ourselves. Even if the word compassion is never voiced, even if it's never used, that's what we're doing. We're deepening the ability to begin again, which follows us into life, because after all, we don't really practice meditation to become a great meditator, do we? We practice to have a different life. So we make a mistake. We want to be able to begin again more gracefully. We want to be able to start over. We want to be kinder to ourselves and not maybe go off on those long, long, long rants of judgment. That doesn't weaken us to let go of that. That actually strengthens us. So even contained in that foundational exercise, we find the the development of all three of these skills. Okay, so let's sit together. I don't know if you want to stretch or just move a bit. Those benches are okay.
This is such a nice room, isn't it? So why don't you sit comfortably, see if your back can be straight without being strained or overarched. And you can close your eyes or not, however you feel most at ease. If your eyes are open, they could also be like a little bit open. And you can find a spot to rest your gaze, let it go. And we can begin by listening to sound whether it's the sound of my voice or other sounds. It's a way of relaxing deep inside, allowing our experience to come and go. Even though, of course, we like certain sounds and we don't like others, we don't have to chase after them to hold on or push away. Just let them come, let them go. It's like the sounds just wash through you. And bring your attention to the feeling of your body sitting, whatever sensations you discover. Bring your attention to your hands and see if you can make the shift from the more conceptual level, like oh, fingers, to the world of direct sensation. Picking up pulsing, throbbing, pressure, whatever it might be. You don't have to name these things, but feel them.
and bring your attention to the feeling of the breath. In this system, it's just the normal, natural breath. You don't have to try to make it deeper or different. Just be with the breath as it's appearing and as it changes. See if there's a place where you feel the breath most distinctly. Maybe it's at the nostrils or the chest or the abdomen. If you find that place, you can bring your attention there and just rest. See if you can feel one breath. without concern for what's already gone by, without leaning forward for even the very next breath, just this one. If you like, you can use a quiet mental notation of in, out, (coughs) or rising, falling to help support the awareness of the breath, but very quiet so that you're really feeling the breath. And if you find yourself getting dragged away, 
lost in thought, or you fall asleep, really don't worry about it. The moment that we realize we've been gone is the most important moment. Where we practice what one of my teachers once called exercising the letting go muscle. We practice gently letting go of whatever has taken us away. And with kindness toward ourselves, we begin again. Just shepherd your attention back to the feeling of the breath. And if you have to do that approximately a billion times in the next few minutes, that's perfectly fine. That's the practice.
And when you feel ready, you can open your eyes. This podcast has been brought to you by the Love Serve Remember Foundation and Ramdas.org. We appreciate all the support for the Foundation and for Ramdas's work, and we hope that you will continue that support. You can go to Ramdas.org and click on the Donate Now button and follow the prompts. Thank you. <laughs>